This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, 1-4. Matthew 6, 1-4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Good morning. morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that this morning you would speak to us, even by your spirit, as we come up under the truth of your word. Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know you more, that we would walk in your ways, that we would be pleasing to you in all things. God, would you come and realign our lives around the things that you say are good and true and valuable for eternity? God, would you deliver us from our own loves, our own comforts, our own desires, God, would you shape us and form us, confront us, convict us? Would you lead us toward yourself for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you are new with us, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for about three months now, and uh, we find ourselves coming into Matthew chapter six, which is this portrait of these means of grace that Jesus lays out for us to pursue uh, conformity around the value system of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to look at giving today, uh, how Jesus drills in in this first invitation to his disciples of what giving looks like uh, before his face and before his eyes. But before we get into that, I want to spend a little time uh, reviewing where we're at and laying a foundation for how we're going to talk about finances and money in the kingdom of God. And so we've got, we've got some fun things to look at this morning. If you've got the notes, uh, just look with me here at the top. The Sermon on the Mount, as we've talked about week in and week out, is Jesus' invitation to his disciples to experience and live a greater measure of what he calls the blessed or whole life, this complete life before him that is oriented and ordered around what he says is good and valuable and whole. This life in in this sermon is centered around the eight Beatitudes that he leads with, which are the most succinct portrait of the value system of God's kingdom. 
If you want to know what uh, the value system of the kingdom of God looks like, right? Every, every society, every culture, every kingdom has a value system that we embody or look to to think that we're going to find satisfaction and wholeness. And in the kingdom of heaven is no different. Jesus lays out this picture that is meant to captivate our imaginations and conscript our hearts to, gl- to run hard after the things that he says are good and whole and lasting forever. The presence of these virtues or these eight beatitudes, Jesus tells are the mark of our discipleship before him and the measure of true and lasting greatness in his eyes. So in chapter six, look at letter C. Jesus begins to outline several practices or means of grace that we are to actively pursue as we seek to cultivate these beatitudes in our lives. What we just have come out of at the end of chapter five are these temptations that are meant to be resisted as we seek to cultivate these beatitudes in partnership with the grace of God. Now Jesus is going to tell us what we are to actively pursue and how to pursue them. Jesus is not concerned to do away with means of grace in his kingdom. Rather, he's concerned to reorient how we pursue these, meaning we're to do them before God's eyes and God's eyes alone. And he wants to reorient why we do these, meaning we do them for true and lasting reward from our Father in heaven. So to understand this section, we have to understand how God has ordained and given us means of grace that are meant to be pursued in order that we would experience more of his grace. We're to pursue these activities with confidence before him, meaning these activities don't buy us or procure us favor in the eyes of God. These are not the means by which you make yourself pleasing to God. You are accepted as pleasing in Christ Jesus through his work alone. That is, that's the only way that you have standing before God, acceptance into his presence, is through the finished work of Jesus alone and your apprehension of that work by faith in it, right? So you, you look to him and him alone for your righteousness, which means your right standing before God and being accepted in his eyes. That is the only way we have standing before God. So these activities aren't how you make yourself clean before him or how you make yourself pleasing to him. What they are, are our expressions of submission and trust to him. So I want you to, I want you to catch this. Faith always looks like something, right? This is, this is where you get in the New Testament. You know, Paul, if you read Paul, it's faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And then James comes along and seems to contradict when he says, if you talk about your faith, I'll show you my works. What he's getting at there is faith or trust in God always has concrete expression in our lives. Faith isn't an ethereal concept that we just imagine in our brains and go, yeah, I believe something, and then has no boots on the ground orienting effect in our lives, where our lives are changed and our our behaviors are modified, right? Like that is reality. Faith looks like something. 
And Jesus is inviting us into a greater posture of faith by pursuing these means of grace in order to experience more of his life and his power and his grace in our lives. Look at letter C under Roman numeral two. One of the dynamic realities of understanding these means that we get in Matthew 6 is they are all invitations to voluntarily take on a posture of weakness. Every single one of these means of grace that Jesus outlines for us, giving, prayer, forgiveness, fasting, they all involve taking on voluntarily a posture of weakness. Right, You take something that you would look to as a strength in your life, something that you could use to prop yourself up or make your life better, right? and you empty yourself of that before the eyes of God as, a, as an expression of your submission and your trust to him. Each of these pursuits, we give up something that we generally understand as a strength, right? Money, time, control. Your own, uh, your own ability to accomplish something, personal rights, food. I mean, how, how, how much more fundamental to your strength than giving up food, right? Every single one of these is giving up something that provides us a sense of strength in order to regularly align ourselves more with what is fundamentally true about us, which is that we're weak and we're dependent and we do not have what it takes in our own capacities to see all of God's purposes and promises manifest in our lives. We're all prone to utilize the resources that God's given us to prop ourselves up, meaning to, we, we lean on them, right? We, we try to keep ourselves from seeing that we're actually weak and dependent. We don't want to be those things, right? Who in this world likes being weak, right? Who, who would sign up for it? Who would, who would go, yeah, 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 I, where I want to be is in the weakest spot. I want to be in the empty spot. I want to be in the hungry spot. I want to be in the thirsty spot. I want to be in the poor spot. Nobody wants to be in those places, right? But it is necessary and essential to how we are made before God to voluntarily put ourselves in those places before his eyes so that we can come into greater agreement with, with what is fundamentally true about us is that we are weak and dependent. Jesus invites us to regularly empty ourselves of our strengths before his eyes that we might consistently and fully experience more of his grace. Think about it this way. If you want to jot a couple scriptures down, Psalm 127 is a great picture of this. In Psalm 127, the psalmist relays or outlines that unless the Lord builds the house, right, the laborers run around and do all this work in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the people stay up all night in vanity. And what he's communicating there is God's, uh, God needs to move in order for it to be meaningful in the ways that we desire, right? I could take all of my money, all of my time, all of my resources and orient them towards things that I think are going to bring me life and satisfaction and joy and they'll fall short, unless God shows up, 
right? So what I do in these means of grace is empty myself in part of some of those strengths, acknowledging God, unless you show up, it really doesn't matter. All of these activities, all of these labors, all of this energy, all of this strength is nothing. So that's Psalm 127. The other you could go to is in Judges, kind of six to nine or so. You get the story of Gideon. And in Gideon, you get this portrait of God whittling down an army uh, to 300 people to go out against an army of thousands and thousands. And God shows up and he says, hey, the reason I did this was because if you went out with similar numbers, you would think you had something to do with this. God's actually really, really into making it look like you can't do it. He's actually really into that. And what he invites us into is to voluntarily put ourselves in that place more consistently. We're going to be there one way or the other. He's going to put us there, or we can voluntarily seek to align ourselves there more consistently as well. That's what these invitations are. Each of these pursuits is intended to bring us more in line with the reality of our poverty of spirit, which is the fundamental principle beatitude that we see at the, at the jump. No one who pursues these things, these practices, giving, prayer, forgiveness, fasting. No one who who pursues them consistently and with a right spirit will feel strong in themselves. You'll feel really weak. Yet it's precisely in the places of weakness that we grow in our experience of God's power and his grace. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom. That's the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. So that's why Jesus puts these out there. So let's look at a biblical view of money. How are we to think about money? How are we to understand it? So as we come to this uh, invitation of giving and giving before the eyes of God, how do we understand it? Now, the reason I'm going to lay this foundation is because if it didn't hit you, What Jesus says here is actually really simple, right? It's a really simple thing. When you give, do it for God's eyes only. So he assumes that you're going to do it, and he tells you how. That's that's the essence of our text this morning, right? So I want to give us a vision for uh, how do we understand money in the economy of God and how do we understand money as an expression of an actual place where we demonstrate love for God through this resource that he's given us so that when we come to this invitation, we have a way of making sense about it. So the first practice that Jesus discusses in Matthew 6 is giving to the needy. So from the jump, he's going to hit you in one of the most important places of your life, right? Jesus starts at your pocketbook. Have you thought about that? Right? The first one, when you give, he just goes straight for it for a lot of really good reasons. He's intending to get to the heart of his disciples and invite them into practicing these things before God's eyes. Look at the top of page two. So the issue of money 
is often one of the most difficult issues for Christians to understand and deal with rightly. There are often many uh, general wrong dispositions. I've put three here that people carry related to finances in the kingdom. You could see these as like two ditches that people often fall off of. And then oftentimes when we, uh, when we vacillate between two, what we would see as ditches, uh, our, our tendency is to just throw our hands up in apathy and kind of forget about something. So we're, we're going to look at those. So the one ditch that we can fall off into is the ditch of like overemphasizing the Bible's teachings on blessing and prosperity, right? Some Christians believe that the Bible teaches God's primary desire is for you to be wealthy, Right? And when I say wealthy here, I don't mean provided for. I mean uh, as according to like worldly experience of comfort or security or ease. Right? They would say that the Bible's primary disposition towards money is your faith or your expression of faith uh, brings you into greater alignment with God's blessing and his great desire is for you to be wealthy. This is a distortion of the Bible's teaching on prosperity and the blessing of God. The Bible does teach all over that there's principles of stewarding your wealth in a way that leads to greater experiences of wealth and prosperity. You just read the Proverbs. There's all sorts of principles that God gives us how to steward finances, how to be wise with it, how to invest it, how to uh, deal rightly with it. However, this can be easily distorted to believe that God gives us wealth primarily for our own ease our own comfort, or our own enjoyment. Now, let me, let me say something. I don't, I don't think this is a huge temptation in our tribe, usually, right? Like, our tribe likes to get up and dog the prosperity gospel people, right? Like, we like to get up and, like, throw shade at them pretty intensely. But the problem with that is there is an aspect where when you read through the Bible, God promises to provide for and bless and care for his people, Right? So we don't need to like uh, uh, throw shade at people who look at that and try to apprehend that by faith, even if they do so in an anemic or uh, um, distorted way. Right? There's a reason why people lay hold of that. There are places in the scripture that lay out principles of what uh, blessing and the favor of God looks like as it relates to finances. So there's truth there. It's just not the whole truth, right? So there's, there's truth, but it's not the full truth, right? So that's one ditch we could fall off of. The other ditch we could fall off uh, is a ditch of like adopting some sort of poverty mindset, right? Like other Christians will believe that to walk in obedience to the teachings of Jesus in the scriptures requires that you adopt some type of uh, poverty mindset towards finances. This way of living in the world adopts, uh, you could say like an adversarial relationship towards any semblance of wealth or money and evaluates your success before the eyes of God on the basis of lack, right? So there's people that take the, the teachings of Jesus related to money and they go, hey, the, the, the place that we need to adopt is this poverty mindset, right? Like wealth is evil or money is evil. And that's, again, there's aspects of truth to that, but it's not the whole truth, right? So how, how do we hold those things together? The problem is, I think, I think the third category is the one we often way more fall into, 
and it's some sort of like avoidance or apathy, the difficulty of this often leads to many Christians simply avoiding the issue altogether. They don't think about uh, their finances very often. Or when you think about them, you only think about them from like a fretful, anxious, like how, like practical level, circumstantial level. You don't think about them from a stewardship level or a, a means by which to use your resources for the glory of God level. This, this, uh, this leads us to not think very often about them, what they mean or how to steward them. Not actively seeking to steward the resources that God has given us according to his value system. So what we need to see is that neither extreme understands the full picture of what the Bible teaches. The Bible invites us to see money as a gift that's given to us by God to be stewarded in the posture of a relationship with him, with the one who abundantly gives freely while being on guard against the pervasiveness of sin and distortion that grows in our hearts related to money, right? So we have this, this, te- this uh, tension that we've got to hold on to as we think about this. Look at letter D. I think the Bible invites us to embody on the whole principles of joy-filled simplicity, generosity, contentedness, and sacrifice, at the heart of how we're to understand our relationship to money. So I can't paint the whole picture of that. And the cool thing is we've got three sermons on money coming up in chapter six. So we'll get, we'll get some time to really like drill into some of this stuff, but the flyover of what I think the Bible teaches about money is that it is a gift given by God. It is a, a resource that is given by God. And he does so, and we are to respond with principles or, or postures of joy-filled. I think that's really important, right? Like it's, it's meant to be this joyful thing as we step into this, not a begrudging thing, not a thing that's like we're just doing this out of duty or we have to. God, God longs for our hearts to be filled with joy and freedom as it relates to this, that it, we take on a posture of simplicity generosity, contentedness, and sacrifice. So I think you could maybe portray a biblical ideal for wealth, something along these lines, that we would possess enough to uh, resource for our basic needs with the ability to give generously for the sake of investment in God's kingdom. I, I think a biblical vision for money is what we see in 1 Timothy 6, where Paul goes, hey, if we have what we need, we're content. If we have food and clothing, if we have shelter, we're content. We know how to be content there. And we understand that God gives resources for the furtherance of his kingdom. Right? So we desire to be vessels or conduits or, or means by which... Uh, uh, resources are moved toward greater investment in God's kingdom for his glory. That I would like to offer you as a biblical ideal for how we think about money. Rather than thinking about money as consumption, we think about money as stewardship or investment in the kingdom, not just investment in our retirement, but investment in eternal things, investment in the things that matter to God. The scripture commands 
uh, the scripture's commandments related to money, I think this is amazing, are almost entirely related to the posture of the heart, not on commands related to specifics, meaning what percentage are you supposed to give? What are you to spend on specific things, right? Like what's a need? What's a want? What's an excess? Like all that kind of stuff. There aren't exact commandments in the Bible. I think it's really ma- that really matters because God wants us to be about communion with him and relationship to him, not just about you embodying some kind of new law. So look at Roman numeral four, loving God with our money. Money is one of the most powerful ways to discern what we love. The fact that it's a limited resource in our lives, meaning you can only spend a dollar once to the chagrin of everyone, right? Once you spend a dollar, it's done. It's gone. You don't have it anymore. You can only spend a dollar once, right? So where you put your dollars tells you a ton about what you love, what you think is valuable, what you think matters, what you think will provide you some of these things that Jesus is getting at at the core of the Sermon on the Mount, value, blessedness, contentedness, wholeness. Remember, letter B, the Sermon on the Mount at its heart is about reorienting our lives around the value system of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so I've been asking myself this dangerous question lately, and I want to give it to you, and I want you to ask this question too. Does my budget, does my budget, the stewardship of my money, does it reflect the values that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount? When you take your budget, right? A budget is simply a spreadsheet that tells you what you love. Just like your schedule is a time log that tells you what you love. When you look at your money, when I look at my money, does it show that I love the things that God loves? I'm starting to ask ask God this question. Would you show me the places where when you look at my budget, when you look at where dollars change hands, does it align with the values of your kingdom? Or does it align with a different value system? Do I think that that thing is going to provide me wholeness and fullness and joy and satisfaction so I orient my resources towards that? Many people don't understand that faithful stewardship of our money is one of the most potent places that we can express love for God in our lives. It's easy for believers to fall prey to the lie that we can just simply add Jesus to a current value system and leave things like the use of our money unchanged. The teachings of Jesus invite us to follow him in discipleship. That's the whole of your life. You don't get to go, hey, I'm going to keep this value system and bring Jesus along for the ride. Jesus goes, no, you come and follow me. That's why all over the place in the scriptures, he gets to look at people and go, hey, sell everything. Come and follow me. Get rid of everything. I'm like a treasure in a field. If you go and sell it all to get the field, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. That's why he gets to do that, because he is the Lord over what value system we hold on to, and our money is just a little part of it, 
right? Like our money, our finances, how we use our resources, that has to come up under his value system. We don't get to pursue a different one and go, Jesus gets to jump in from time to time. All of those things have to get realigned around him first. Look at the top of page three. This requires that we become thoughtful and prayerful about how we use our money before God's eyes. The biblical teaching on money is not how do I posture myself to get the most I can in order to use it for my own comfort or my own pleasure or my own ease. The biblical teaching on money is how do I posture myself to relate to the heart of God with this stewardship? How do I relate to God's heart here? How do I steward this resource that he's given me in agreement with his heart in ways that demonstrate love and devotion to him? To evaluate how we spend our money touches on a lot of places of fear, anxiety, insecurity, right? Like nothing gets at it like like money does. Nothing gets at primal places of fear and insecurity like money. Jesus invites us to grow in loving response to him by faith in trusting him in this area. So one of the realities of practice of giving is it invites us into cultivating a history of relationship with God. Many believers don't have an active history of communion with God around this issue, right? Like we just, we don't bring it up or we don't do this before his eyes. The idea of doing this before his eyes has to do with communion. That's what it has to do with. Has to do with relationship. Has to do with living before him and him getting to dictate when and how we, we uh, live our lives in these ways. Okay, so let's get to the actual invitation then. When you give to the needy. So Jesus begins this by talking about when they give to the needy. In the context, this would be like giving alms to the poor. One of the remarkable realities is that Jesus implies that there will be a continued expectation for his disciples to participate in this, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you decide to do this or when it's convenient to you to do this, he says, when you do this. And he's gonna do this with all of these. He assumes the reality. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, these are assumptions in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you don't need to worry about this practice. He says, I'm assuming you're going to be doing this because this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what's close to my heart. Now, when you do it, let me give you some tips on how and why to do it. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a specific emphasis on caring for the poor among the people of God. This principle is not removed in the New Covenant family, but the way in which we're to walk this out is redefined in light of Jesus. It's also important, I really want us to hit this too. I want us to feel this. Jesus here is not talking about the biblical idea of tithing or the, the, the giving of the first fruits as an act of trust and faith in the provision of God. Now, throughout the scripture, and you see this in the practice of the, of the church, the principle of tithing is an act of obedience that's intended to reorient our hearts toward a couple things. Number one, we acknowledge that God is the provider of everything, 
right? So we, when we receive, we take of the first fruits, the first portion, and we give it back to him. Not because God needs our money. Because we acknowledge this all came from you, and so I'm going to give it back to you as a free expression of knowing that you provided this. That's the first thing it does. And the second thing it does is it, it actually aligns us again on dependent trust that he will continue to provide. Right, So when I take the, the 100% that he gave me and I give 10 away, I have to acknowledge that God is able to do more with my 90% than I'm able to do with my 100. Right, So I acknowledge that he gave it all to me and that I am submitting myself to trust him for his provision. It's an acknowledgement and it's growing independence. Right? That's not what God's talking about here. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about this. This is, again, an assumption. He's talking about specific acts of mercy done as we use our resources to meet the needs of others. The Greek word here, you could translate it literally as like, when you are mercy-minded, when you go about your mercy-minded deeds, right? When you do these things as acts of mercy to meet a need, do it this way. Jesus warns his disciples to not perform them in order to receive the praise and accolades of men. This leads us to see that many of the religious leaders of the day had come to perform such righteous practice so that they could be seen as virtuous in the eyes of others. Hey, virtue signaling goes way back. <laughs> hey, I'm going to put on display, this is what I'm into, right? But my life doesn't actually change. In the hidden places, my heart doesn't change. But I'm going to let everybody around me know what I'm into. I'm into this mercy thing. Jesus declares that that was hip hypocrisy or play acting. They're, they're doing this for the eyes of people, for the reverence of men and their attention. It's not truly righteous because at the heart, it's not actually concerned with God's glory, nor the need of another. So we, we, he tells us, don't do it this way. When you give, when you do these acts of mercy, don't do them to get accolades from people. Don't do them so that people think you're amazing, right? And all over the place in the New Testament, Jesus also tells us, don't do them so that that person pays you back. He says, do this how? Before my eyes and my eyes alone. Look at verse three. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Rather than perform our virtue for the eyes of a watching world, Jesus then invites his disciples to a different way of embodying acts of mercy. He invites his disciples to do such actions simply for the eyes of God in order to be truly rewarded by him. In order to do this, he exhorts them not even to let their left hand know what their right hand is doing. Right? This is a graphic way of showing that we're not even to do it to like pat ourselves on the back. Right? And how many people do this? Right, We do this. When we give, we could give in secret and we walk away going, oh man, look at how in secret I did that. Jesus is going, don't even do that. Don't even congratulate yourself on this. Don't do it for the self-proud 
puffing up realities. Do it because you want your heart to be connected to mine. Do it because you want to be pleasing before the eyes of your father who sees in secret. Do it for communion with him. Jesus promises that the father will reward those who are generous with their resources, specifically time and money. We must have a vision for the true rewards that come from the hand of God in order for our labors to be done in faith before him. Now, I want to tell you something. You can be unapologetic about this in your own soul, right? There's this like false humility that can come over us because Jesus says, don't do it. Like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We want to have this like, aw shucks. I don't want any kind of like return from God. I just want to like be faithful or, you know, whatever. You're being more humble than Jesus is because Jesus says, do it for the eternal reward that will come when your father sees you. Do it because there's an, uh, the eyes of a God who watches and knows and sees in secret and he will remember it and know it and he will come close to you. Whatever that reward is, I want it. And I want to be unapologetic about it because he will give it in its right time, its right manner, and in eternity, I won't have all of this like junk of sinfulness to mess with how I engage it. So I will only engage it for his glory and for joy in him. You know, some people talk about eternal rewards, like the size of your cup, right? Jonathan Edwards talked about it this way. He said, it's like, uh, eternal rewards have to do with the capacity that we have. We're all going to be full. I just want a really, really big capacity. I want my cup to be as big as it possibly can so when I get dunked down into the ocean of God's glory, I actually experience more of it in my fullness. We are all full, right? John Piper talks about it like your flashlight, how bright it shines. We're all going to shine as bright as we can. But I want my flashlight to be as bright as it possibly can be. And I want to be unapologetic about that. I don't want to demure or like defect back from that. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to go, I want to live faithfully before God's eyes. I want to posture myself in more dependence to him. And I want to do it unapologetically. Okay. So what kind of rewards do we see here? What is Jesus saying? The first we could say is, Internal. There's a sense of internal rewards that we have as we live in this way before God. The primary way that I think we experience this in this life is through a greater experience of his grace internally. As we live before his eyes and give of ourselves, right? As we take on more voluntary weakness and we, we take something and, and give it, we experience more of God's manifest presence, his life, his love, his power. Right? This isn't a one-for-one -one exchange. It's not like a vending machine. But over time, we will experience more of this in our lives. Let me just outline how this might sound or how it might play out in your life. Right? You see a need. You feel stirred to give somewhere. You take your dollar. You give it away. Okay, that dollar's not yours anymore. Right? Now something comes up and you need a dollar. What does it do? What does it do in your soul? All of these places of fear and anxiety and insecurity start to come up. 
It's like, man, I wish I would have held on to that dollar. What do you do in that moment? You come up under the grace of God and you go, God, you are my rock. You are my provider. You will give me all that I need. You won't let me uh, go without. God, you sustain me. You keep me. You provide for me. And our hearts commune with him. And he responds. Now, you may not ever get the dollar back. You may not. You may. You may get five back. Who knows? He'll, he'll be good and right in the way that he does all those things. But your heart has grown in loving dependence to him. And you get to work out some of those deep places of distrust and fear and anxiety and uncertainty before his eyes, right? So we take on those postures of voluntarily being weak in that moment. And we receive more of his grace in relationship with him. Okay, there are some ex, uh, external rewards that we do experience. One of the difficulties of understanding this is rightly understanding external expressions of this in our lives in this age. To experience the provision of the Lord in our lives is not the primary pursuit, but God does use external blessing to show us that he sees the movements of our hearts and he cares. Okay, I wish I could tell some stories here. I don't have any time. But these are the places where I've seen it happen and I, I have friends that have walked through these kind of things where there's postures of I'm going to give before the eyes of God and in really odd, bizarre ways, God shows up and like meets the exact need at the exact time and the exact number and all these kind of things. And God, uh, what he's doing in those moments you begin to step out and do it before his eyes and you're going to see those things happen. What he is not concerned with doing is paying you back so you can buy like better sneakers or something. What he wants to do is wow you that his eyes are watching, right? He wants to show you how meticulously poetic he can be in orchestrating things just at the right time in just the right way. He's not concerned about your quality of life going up necessarily. That's not what he's trying to get at so that you can like pl unplug and like ease out and get more comfortable and have better stuff. He wants to show you that he sees you. And he will use this means to show you that. I promise you. I promise you. So if you go, God, I want to start stepping into that. I promise you there will be ways that God will find in this world, in your story, to come close to you and go, I saw that. I promise. I promise it will happen. The last is eternal. So we... We, we look for and long for eternal aspects of our reward in the eyes of God. The Bible's full of places that speak of our use of earthly wealth as a training ground for eternal wealth. Look at Luke 16 here. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then, these are the words of Jesus, have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Who will entrust you with those? This is a, this is a training ground for us to lovingly 
uh, dispose our hearts to God in humble trust of him. This is one of the ways that he has given to us. So how do we respond? What does that look like for us? I want to give three quick application points and then we'll pray. First, I want to invite you to begin to make specific commitments to give. If you're just beginning your journey here, you must see that giving is not optional in God's economy. It's not, this isn't like a side thing. This isn't a thing that like when you're more established, this isn't a thing when like uh, you have excesses of resources that we can step into. This is a fundamental place where God longs for our hearts to be knit to his and we use something that's a real strength of ours to, uh, to take on places of weakness. And I, I just want to press in again this is not like an optional thing. Like giving isn't just this side thing that like when you're established and stable, you can finally do it. Jesus, and and here's the beautiful thing. There are stories in the scriptures that Jesus is not concerned with the amount. He is concerned of the heart reality right? Because there's the the parable of the widow, right? When she drops her two mites into the the money box, Jesus goes, she gave way more than all these people that are giving these lavish gifts and blowing trumpets about it. Like she gave because she gave out of her lack. God is concerned that we exercise the muscle of trusting him in these places. So make specific commitments Set yourself to begin to give of the first fruits of your income. If you're not tithing, give that way. Start there. And if you go, man, I don't have any, any money to give. I don't. Like, okay, look at your Netflix subscription. Or look at the coffees that you buy. Or look at the things that you do that might be excess. And go, man, do I... Which one needs to come first? Make specific commitments here. Start by talking to God about your money, right? So we make specific commitments. Start talking to God about this. I find that our finances should be a regular part of our dialogue with the Lord. Why? Because all the way back, money is a limited resource in our lives and it tells us what we value. It really does tell us what we value. And so we should talk to God about it. Ask him to start showing us how to see it, right? Ask the Lord to change the way you see money, right? Moving us from consumption to stewardship or from comfort and control to eternal investment. Ask God to make clear to you what your needs are, what your desires are, what your excesses are. Do we have courage to ask the Lord to start talking to us about this? God, would you talk to me about this? And then be willing to obey when he does. Those are the, those are the two sides of the same coin. When he talks, because he will, be willing to obey no matter what he says. Ask him to burn away the things from your life now that hinder greater obedience and love. Ask God to begin building your personal history with him in this area. We want to grow our own personal history with God in relation to finances, not because we want to live extravagant lifestyles of excess or comfort. We want to grow in the certainty that his eyes are on us and he cares for us. Both that his 
he has abundant power to provide for us. And I want to know as much as he'll let me know right now, I want him to, I want to know that my choices matter to him, right? There's, there's ways that I can choose to believe that by faith, that God, you care, you see, you know, and, and what I do with my strength, with my heart, with my mind, it matters. And there are ways that God draws near to us and whispers that those things matter to us even now. So this is my invitation to you all. Make specific commitments, right? So do that. Ask God, start talking to him about your money and ask him to begin building this in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Just as we prepare to respond by coming to the table this morning, let's just take a moment and present ourselves before God. Just set our hearts. Anytime we see an invitation in the scriptures by Jesus, a commandment and uh, exhortation, it's a, it's a chance for us to set our hearts to obey him to turn ourselves and say, God, this is what I long to be true about me. Even in the places where it's not, even in the places where my heart is still clouded and distorted or I'm, I'm holding on and I'm controlling, even in those places, God, I want to be in line with your heart. So let's just take a moment and, and set ourselves before him right now. Just in your own way, say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. All that I have is yours. Everything in my life is yours. All of my strength, all of my resource, all of my money. God, you are worth all of it. You're worth all of it. I am your disciple. You've called me to follow you and I trust you. God, so would you speak? God, would you speak in this moment? Holy Spirit, all, all across this room, even in this very moment, would you begin to speak to us? Would you speak to us about this issue, about how we use our money, how we, how we give before you? God, if there are places uh, in, in this, people in this room that right now are just saying like, I, I, this is a place I gotta, I gotta set myself for the first time. God, would you give grace there? Would you give grace there in the places where it feels scary to take a step out and, and, uh, and, and, and reach here? God, I, I ask that you would meet us with your grace, your empowering presence. God, would you, would you begin to speak to us as a family about our money? God, in a, in a culture that is wealthy, and at ease, where there's a lot of comfort, where there's a lot of like running after this because we think we have to keep up with the Joneses and the people around us. God, we, we want to be a people whose finances uh, demonstrate a better kingdom, a better kingdom, a truer kingdom, one that lasts forever.
God, would you meet us and speak to us there? We're going to respond now through song. We're going to come to the table. And as we do every single week, we'll have prayer ministers throughout the room. If the Lord's stirring in your, in your soul and you want to respond uh, in a particular way and ask somebody to pray for you and ask for the Spirit's grace to, to be close to you, uh, we have people who would love to pray with and for you. But we're going to come to the table as well. Servers, you're welcome to come forward now. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Come and take it and eat it. And in the same manner, he took a, a cup of wine and gave thanks for it and said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Take it and drink from it. And we're going to respond as a family to God's word and his, his invitation to us this morning by coming to the table. If you're a Christian, if you look to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, we invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take this at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. The servers are up front in the middle, in the balcony, and we have a gluten-free, allergy-free station over here to my right, your left. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus today, we want to ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal signifies the reality. The meal doesn't save you. It doesn't wash you before God. It doesn't cleanse you before God. It doesn't make you right before God. Only Jesus can do that. And so we would invite you to look to him by faith today. But if that's not you, don't feel pressure to come and, and, and take this with us. Just stay in your seat. Uh, but for those of you who are receiving, come and joyfully uh, celebrate the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. We'll respond in those ways and you can come when you're ready.